When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Forward. It is three years since the referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union. Not a day has passed that I haven't thought about my decision to hold that vote and the consequences of doing so. Yet during that time, I've barely spoken publicly about it or about any issues around my premiership. The reason is that I wanted to let my successor get on with the job. It's hard enough being Prime Minister, let alone one who has the momentous task of delivering Brexit, without your immediate predecessor giving a running commentary. That silence has inevitably let certain narratives develop, for example, about my motivations for holding the referendum and about my departure from Downing Street. There has been analysis of aspects of my premiership, from the campaign in Libya to the schemes that have helped so many people to buy their own home, with which I've disagreed deeply. But my discomfort at not being able to respond to these things is nothing compared to the pain I've felt at seeing our politics paralysed and our people divided. It has been a bruising time for Britain, and I feel that keenly. Yet just as I believe it is right for Prime Ministers to be allowed to get on with their job without interference, I also believe it's right for former Prime Ministers to set out what they did and why, and to correct the record where they think it is wrong. Fortunately, I kept a record during my time in the job. Every month or so, my friend and advisor, the journalist Danny Finkelstein, would come to the flat above 11 Downing Street where I lived with my wife Samantha and our three young children. Danny and I would sit on the sofas in the bright sitting room that overlooks St James's Park as he gently quizzed me about recent events. Those recordings have helped me write this memoir, just as scribbles in a notebook or recordings on a dictaphone have assisted others. I sometimes quote directly from the recordings because they provide such an insight into how I felt at the time. Hearing them back and writing this book has helped me to understand how I feel about it all now. A friend once asked Margaret Thatcher what, if she had her time again, she would do differently. There was a thoughtful pause. Then she answered, I think I did pretty well the first time. I don't feel quite the same. When I look back at my career in politics, I do have regrets. Lots. Not every choice we made during our economic programme was correct. There were many things that could have been handled better, like the health reforms. What happened after we prevented Gaddafi slaughtering his people in Benghazi was far from the outcome I'd have liked. The first parliamentary vote on intervention in Syria was a disaster. 
And around the EU referendum, I have many regrets. From the timing of the vote to the expectations I allowed to build about the renegotiation, there are many things I would do differently. I'm very frank about all of that in the pages that follow. I did not fully anticipate the strength of feeling that would be unleashed both during the referendum and afterwards. And I am truly sorry to have seen the country I love so much suffer uncertainty and division in the years since then. But on the central question of whether it was right to renegotiate Britain's relationship with the EU and give people the chance to have their say on it, my view remains that this was the right approach to take. I believe that, particularly with the Eurozone crisis, the organisation was changing before our very eyes, and our already precarious place in it was becoming harder to sustain. Renegotiating our position was my attempt to address that, and putting the outcome to a public vote was not just fair and not just overdue, but necessary and, I believe, ultimately inevitable. I know others may take a different view, but I couldn't see a future where Britain didn't hold a referendum. So many treaties have been agreed, so many powers transferred, and so many promises about public votes made and then not fulfilled. With all that was happening in the EU, this could not be sustained. Of course, there are many who welcome the referendum, and that was reflected in the overwhelming vote for it in Parliament and in the high public turnout when the time came. Far from being a flash in the pan, the referendum was announced more than a year before the 2014 European elections and more than two years before the general election. It was set out clearly in a manifesto that delivered an overall majority in the House of Commons. But I know there are those who will never forgive me for holding it, or for failing to deliver the outcome, Britain staying in a reformed EU, that I sought. I deeply regret the outcome, and accept that my approach failed. The decisions I took contributed to that failure. I failed. But in my defence, I would make the case as I think all Prime Ministers have, that especially when you're in the top job, not doing something or putting something off is also a decision. And that is the thing that stands out for me when I look back over this time. Decision-making. A Prime Minister these days is constantly in contact with their office by email, text and messenger services and is therefore making decisions, large and small, almost by the minute. They also as I did over the EU referendum, consider the biggest decisions over months, even years. It's the most difficult, most stressful, yet most rewarding part of the job. In many ways, it is the job, and I almost called this book Decisions for that very reason. Indeed, so many of Britain's problems we found when we came to power in 2010 were a result of decisions that had been put off. The government had spent and spent while the deficit and debt were left to grow and grow. Low pay and high taxes had been plugged by an ever-increasing benefit system. Educational standards were sliding, but masked by increasingly generous grades. More and more people were going to university, but the system was becoming unsustainable. Big calls on infrastructure were avoided, while new superpowers raced ahead. Immigration went up and up, but without the control, integration and public consent that is needed to sustain such rapid changes to our society. 
Businesses were hamstrung by regulation, and economic growth was excessively concentrated in the southeast. And yes, as I've said, Britain's unstable position in a changing EU was the biggest can kicked down the longest road. In order to confront these issues, we had to do several bold things. We had to modernise the party and make it electable once again, not with a modest change to our image, but a full-blown overhaul of who we were, the issues we addressed, how we conducted ourselves, and what we had to say to people in 21st century Britain. Then we had to do something just as bold, form the first coalition government since the Second World War, unpalatable for many in our party, and make it endure, impossible, according to many commentators. We then had to fix the country's finances after the worst crash in living memory. At the same time, we were bringing troops home from Afghanistan while facing down security threats at home and around the globe. None of these things was inevitable. They happened because we made them happen. Indeed, many things happened, as this book will show, simply because I got a bee in my bonnet about an issue and got the bit between my teeth, and, like most modern politicians, mixed my metaphors along the way. The Youth Volunteering Programme, National Citizen Service, is something I'm often stopped about in the street, and it was an idea I dreamt up many years ago. Technology is changing our world for the better, in healthcare, finance, development, transport, the environment, and much else besides. And partly because of the support we gave in government, the UK is in the vanguard of all things tech. The UK is also leading the world in dementia research and care, and putting it on the global agenda all started when, as an MP, I realised the extent and implications of diseases like Alzheimer's. Britain is one of the few countries to meet and keep its promise to the poorest in the world by spending 0.7% of its national income on international aid and development. It's something I've always felt passionately about and wouldn't relent on in government. In fact, these four things, volunteering, tech, dementia and aid, have been my focus outside politics over the last few years. For all the dissatisfaction with the futility of politics and the failures of politicians, the progress we made on them in government proves you can make a difference. We were practising politics in the early 21st century, at a time when that dissatisfaction with politics, with an entire global system, was on the rise. 9-11 and 7-7 led to a sense of physical and cultural insecurity. The 2008 financial crash led to economic insecurity. People looked to those in authority for answers, but all they saw was people in power failing, from MPs fiddling expenses to journalists hacking phones and bankers gambling on our global economy. Much of what we did in government was focused on combating economic insecurity. We helped create a record number of jobs, cut taxes for the lowest paid, and substantially increased the minimum wage. To address security concerns, we established the National Security Council, backed our intelligence and security services, and sharpened the focus on combating all forms of Islamist extremism. Not just the appalling violence, but the poisonous narratives of exclusion and difference on which it feeds. However, it was in the field of dealing with the sense of cultural insecurity that we failed most seriously. I support a world with global institutions and rules, and fundamentally believe that, 
On the whole, this is in Britain's interests. But an impression has grown that the interests of our country, our nation-state, are on occasion secondary to some wider global or institutional goal. Most of the time, this is nonsense. Occasionally, and the European Court of Human Rights is the most prolific offender here, it is correct. We should have done more to override this when true and challenge it when not. Most importantly, we failed to deliver effective control over levels of immigration into our country and to convey a sense that the system we were putting in place was in the national interest. Those who share my enthusiasm for free markets, open economies and diverse societies have got to recognise that none of these things will endure unless we deal with the insecurities and demonstrate that doing so is absolutely vital to making our country more prosperous. The debate now seems to be pro-globalisation versus anti-globalisation. My point is that we have to listen to the genuine arguments of those who are anti if we are to preserve what I believe we all ought to be pro. Readers might wonder why I've dedicated so much space to the early years of opposition and modernisation of the Conservative Party. It all seems rather distant, even irrelevant to today's troubles. Hoodies, huskies, the big society are literally so 2008. I disagree. It may be tempting to respond to these desperate times with desperate measures, to become louder and more extreme in our answers. But I believe the opposite is required. I look back at the approach we were taking in opposition during the early years of this young century, moderate, rational, reasonable politics, and I realise those things are more important than ever. In these difficult, disputatious times, as this young century reaches its 20s, I passionately believe the centre can hold. The centre is still the right place to be, a bold, radical, exciting place to be, which is why another working title for this book was Right at the Centre. Winning the 2015 election after five years of coalition, difficult economic decisions and bold measures, like legislating for gay marriage, was proof that commanding the rational centre ground can deliver good government and good politics too. It is the approach, in my view, that should be applied to Brexit. The most sensible, most rational and the safest approach would be to seek a very close partnership with the organisation that will remain our biggest source and destination for trade, as well as a vital partner for peace, security and development. Our aim in delivering the outcome of the referendum should be, as I put it in this book, to become contented neighbours of the EU rather than reluctant tenants. I have tried throughout the book to mention as many people as I can who worked with me over the years, from those who mentored me when I was a young researcher starting out in politics, to my own special advisers when I was PM. I'm sorry to anyone I've missed. I'm so proud of you all, not only of what we achieved together, but what so many have gone on to do in finding centre-right answers to the biggest problems we face, from climate change to poverty, modern slavery, an ageing society and more. I also want to thank those who helped me in writing this book. Danny Finkelstein, who listened to me download my thoughts over the years and helped me shape my arguments when the time came to write about it all. Jonathan Meakin, whose research and fact-checking capacity at times seemed equivalent to an entire government department. Arabella Pike at HarperCollins, and the late Ed Victor, 
who enabled me to turn my proposal into a book and navigate what was, for me, a new world of publishing. Special thanks go to all those people who contributed, commented and reviewed various drafts, especially Nigel Casey, Peter Chadlington, Kate Fall, Andrew Feldman, Rupert Harrison, George Osborne, Hugh Powell, Oliver Letwin, Ed Llewellyn and Liz Sugg. The biggest thank you by far is to Jess Cuniff, who first interviewed me on the campaign trail for a Milton Keynes newspaper, came to write my speeches in Downing Street and eventually helped me to write these memoirs. I've been so lucky in so many ways in my life. I haven't tried to hide that in the pages that follow. But my greatest fortune has been to find a partner who's been the love of my life, my best friend and my rock. All these years on, I'm still in awe of her. So I dedicate this book to Samantha, and I pay tribute at the same time to both our families and our friends. Being a spouse, friend, sibling, parent or child of someone in the public eye isn't always easy particularly when they're Prime Minister, and even more so when they've held a controversial referendum. I want to recognise everyone, particularly Chris and Venetia Lockwood and Mary Wynne Finch, who've been so supportive during my time in politics and since. Sometimes Sam and I talk about how things would have been different if I had stayed on as Prime Minister for the three months after the referendum, as I intended when I announced my departure. This is something that is not really discussed by commentators, but I think it is significant. Had I stayed on for that period, I would have had the chance to explain many of the things people wanted me to explain, the things I wanted to explain. I might have been able to help set the tone for what followed and for the early stages of our departure from the EU. But the 2016 leadership contest collapsed and I didn't get the chance to do so. Instead, it looked like I was beating a hasty retreat, which I wasn't. As I set out later, having campaigned so passionately to remain in the EU, I would have had no authority or credibility to deliver the result of the referendum. The country needed a new Prime Minister. It would have been impossible for me to do the job. So this book is my chance to say what I wanted to say then and what I want to say now. It is not a historical diary or a political potboiler of who said what to whom and when. It is my take on my life and my political career done my way. It is to help us understand the past and give us some pause for the future. It is for us today and, I hope, for posterity. It is for the record.